So hi, everybody. Welcome, if you're joining us via Facebook live feed, to our new show coming to you from NEMA Metrics in Oregon, 17 Minutes of Science. 17, you ask, why not? We all have 17 minutes today to plug in and talk about cool topics around science, because in light of everything that's going on, it's great to talk about things that, that mean a lot to us and others in our community. So my name is Sarah. Welcome. And this is my dear colleague, Ben Gisilla, who is a zebrafish researcher at NEMA Metrics based here in Eugene, Oregon. So Ben, how are you doing? I am doing well, all things considered. Um, if you had asked me, I don't know, a year, six months, a week ago, if I was gonna be doing a Facebook live stream talking about zebrafish during the middle of a global pandemic, I probably wouldn't believe you, but here we are. <laughs> That's right. We are in a moment that is untested, but I think um, the take home for me is that science is relevant again. So mm -hmm. let's shine a light on some of that. Um, yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about your background just briefly um, and your interest in zebrafish as a model for disease? And then once we get through that, I'm going to hit my timer and we're going to stick to our clock of 17 minutes and we're going to kind of do this speed style where I'm gonna fire off some questions and uh, we might get some questions from viewers and we'll try to accommodate that as necessary uh, if we can. So tell us about you and what brought you to the world of fish. Cool, um, I will, I'll give you the abridged version. Um, so I grew up in Minnesota. I did my undergraduate at the University of Minnesota um, in genetic cell biology and development. Um, I fell in love with um, genetics generally, but model systems in particular. Um, the elegance with which experiments could be carried out and designed to ask things about human health and disease and underlying biology. Um, I moved out to Salt Lake City at the University of Utah, and I studied with uh, Dr. Kristen Kwan there in the Department of Human Genetics uh, for a couple of years uh, and worked as a technician there. Um, and that's where I was introduced to zebrafish as a model system. Um, I think David Grunwald, um, was actually the first to show me a zebrafish uh, when I was interviewing with him. Um, and he showed me a zebrafish on the microscope and I saw its heartbeat and the blood cells circulating. And I was like, that, that's what I wanted. Um, it, had you, it had you at the heartbeat. Yep, yep. And then uh, uh, Kristen showed me um, some videos of the confocal microscopy that they were doing tracking cell fates and looking at cell behaviors in the developing eye. Um, and some 3D reconstructions that they were doing. And it was just beautiful. There are these transparent embryos with powerful genetic tools and developmental biology features available. So it was, it, it coupled my, my love for biology and genetics and uh, human health relevance to a model system that was very tractable and uh, manipulable. So um, then I, I made Great. the move out to Oregon. So I'm here. That's right. And we're lucky to have you here. Well, thank you for that context. And I am going to hit my clock and we'll start uh, firing this off. You, you kind of actually touched on this already, but it sounds like uh, based on the cell biology, largely an imaging capability coupled with genetics, that really took you home to zebrafish. But did you contemplate other models as you were looking for um, a research basis? Yeah, I did. Um, so I've, uh, I think, so I, I touched on mice, I touched on Drosophila, and I touched on zebrafish. Um, and I, 
um, appreciate the different strengths and weaknesses of each of those models. Um, Crystalla is an absolute powerhouse of genetics and molecular biology tools. Um, mouse as well um, has, has really been the, the vertebrate model that, that we've utilized to study human health. Um, but I think mm -hmm. where zebra comes in is, you know, it is a high fecundity animal. You get a lot of individual embryos that are externally fertilized. They're optically clear. They have eyes. They have a nose. They have brain, spinal cord, liver, pancreas. They have all of these different cell types. They have something like 70 to 80% of human um, human gene orthologs or human disease associated gene orthologs. Um, so break a gene in zebrafish that's associated with disease in a human, more often than not, you find some sort of proxy or similar disease phenotype in, in zebrafish. And that's something that I, I mean, I think it's, it's just a really powerful system that is, that is gaining a lot of traction as more and more people get on board. Well, that actually feeds into a question from my son, who, when I was asking him last night, if you could ask Ben a question, what would it be? Now, bear in mind, um, he's 13. So he said, well, okay, but how does this actually relate? Because zebrafish aren't even mammals. So why would you not use a mouse? When would there, why would you use the fish model and what would, what would be the time to do that versus using a mouse? Yeah, and that's, uh, it sounds like a 13 year old me asking that question. Um, <laughs> um, but the, I guess the, the most straightforward answer is that there are um, different tools for different applications and not all of these model systems have the same strengths you have mice on one hand, which are mammals and are evolutionarily more closely related to humans, but they also have smaller um, litters of pups. They develop internally in moms, so you can't as readily manipulate them during development or study their development. Um, and the timelines are longer. Um, the, the time to adulthood and the time between litters is just it's longer, it's, it's low numbers. Whereas zebrafish, you have a little bit shorter um, husbandry cycle. It's about three months to, or two to three months, give or take, to adulthood from a single cell embryo. Um, and they are, they, you can get 50 to several hundred embryos out of a single mating pair. Um, depending on how you're setting up your crosses, you can get thousands of embryos at a time. And these ex are, externally fertilized so we can study them from the moment that they are fertilized through development all the way to adulthood. You, you get access to every part of that. That's something that's, that's a real strength to, to it as, a, as while still being a vertebrate and having most of the relevant organ systems and conserved biology, um, but being a little bit more amenable to, um, to high throughput and, and manipulation. Okay, I will, I will report back on um, speed, um, size of brood, and access to the very earliest stages of development. That's what zebrafish can really lend to the whole toolkit of model systems. Mm -hmm. I, I will report back. And then actually this makes me think of another question that seems like we're hearing more, um, which is an extension of that is, um, is there a way to make zebrafish more similar to humans? Um, seen as a model and, and why would we do that? When would there be a context to do that? 
Yeah, so so there are a few different ways that people can manipulate the the genetics of zebrafish to uh, to make them more amenable to to a particular human disease state or human condition. Um, one example of that is um, when you're studying gene function. One of the first things that you do if you're investigating a gene that's associated with uh, a disease in humans is that you break it in zebrafish. You either remove it or you introduce a mutation that disrupts the gene function. You look and see what goes wrong. Um, however, those kinds of mutations that just outright break the gene are not necessarily what are happening in the human disease context. In the human disease context, oftentimes you're seeing point mutations, you're seeing missense changes, you're not seeing a total break in the gene, you're seeing an alteration in its functionality or a reduction in function or a change in function and location, um, timing, any number of things. And so what we would want to do in that case is introduce the human mutation into the equivalent position in the zebrafish, or if that if there's not high enough uh, conservation of the, the gene sequence itself, you might actually replace it with a humanized gene. Um, and that's something that um, we are exploring at Metrics actually is to um, take the zebrafish gene, remove it entirely, and replace it with a human equivalent of the gene to see how conserved the function is. And um, at that point, then you can also use it as a tool for more personalized screening for drugs and compounds that have maybe a receptor that isn't present in zebrafish or a receptor that isn't as well conserved in zebrafish, and you can learn a little bit more about the underlying biology and the response to compound stimuli, et cetera. So based on what you just said then, is would it be possible perhaps some point in the future to actually have zebrafish bearing human mutations from specific patients that might be suffering from some disease condition that we don't understand very well? Yeah, and that's that is once one of the strengths of zebrafish is that they are amenable to these genetic manipulations and they have high numbers. They're able to get some of these events out, uh, some of these these editing events out that are not very common. But um, when we do identify them, we can learn a lot about the underlying biology of a human disease state, um, and that is something that. Um, we are working on, we have some internal research projects working on uh, some epilepsy candidates looking at various pathogenic and benign point mutations uh, from patient populations to see what we can learn about their response to drugs, about the biology, about their behavior, um, and about the status, because the truth of it is, um, as we see more and more um, whole genome sequencing um, entering our, the world of medicine, um, we're learning a lot about the different people are carrying, but we don't necessarily know that those what those mutations do. And so one way to learn that is to take those mutations and plug them into an animal model and say, okay, is this actually doing something or is this just a byproduct of genetic drift? Is this, you know, is, is this actually functionally relevant? And is this something that can be acted on in the clinic? It's so powerful to think of, of the promise and hope that that might hold um for diagnostics as we think about the future of precision medicine. Exciting to think of such an uh, animal being able to contribute to that effort. We have a question from the audience. So here it comes. We do. Uh, is it easier? Sorry? Can you hear me, Ben? Yes, I can hear you. Sorry. I was just. Sorry, we had a glitch. It's all right. <laughs> We're still here. 
The question is, is it easier or faster to do mutations in zebrafish rather than mice? Ah, um, so the timelines are slightly different. Um, and I think the, the order for, for mice is on the, the six to nine month timeline up to a year. Um, depending on what you're doing in zebrafish, it may take more or less time. Um, we can, so typically you're looking at two generations of um, screening. So you inject your animals, raise them to adulthood, and then you outcross those animals to see what's being transmitted through their germline. And to raise those to adulthood, that's an additional three months. So you're looking at at least six months of time uh, before you would have an isolated heterozygous mutant if it is being transmitted through the germline of one of your founders. Um, okay. So it's, there may be sort of comparable timelines, but just sort of depending on the question that you're asking, one system might be more applicable to your question than another, than the other. Yeah. Okay. And the, the volume in the fish does help there as well. You have of course. A, a lot of animals that you can screen. Um, one of the problems with uh, particularly knock-in events um, is that they are a low frequency event that happens uh, in the repair in your embryos. Um, this has been um, dialed in in different ways in mice, but in zebrafish, um, one of the ways that you can bypass this is by sheer volume um, and, and screening a larger number of animals for a rare event. That actually brings me, if we can, we can bring it back a moment, uh, <laughs> CRISPR, because we're already sort of talking about that without naming it. So yes. tell us, um, has, how has CRISPR changed zebrafish research and yours? Uh, I mean, generally, research, research has, zebrafish research has been altered by CRISPR, um, not necessarily for exactly what it can do, because there were technologies available like talons and zinc finger nucleases before that could achieve the same thing. But CRISPR has really dropped the threat, the barrier to entry because it is such a straightforward technology to just sort of plug and play. Um, and there are a lot of resources out there that, that facilitate that. Um, and, you know, I've, I mentioned some of the caveats with, with various types of methodologies, but, um, but the, the precision that you can, that you can utilize with CRISPR, the types of innovations that people are using it for, they're not just using it to edit things, to, to make a model. They're, they're doing lineage tracing, they're doing fate mapping, they're knocking down multiple genes in a pathway. It's the, the the different applications that people have utilized it for is, is really impressive and exciting to see. Um, personally, I came into the scene after CRISPR was already, already around. Um, David Grunwald, the floor below us, uh, is one of the pioneers in the field. Um, they, they really know what they're doing when it comes to gene editing and targeted nucleases. And I really got to take advantage of that as somebody in the zebrafish community because there's a lot of shared knowledge um, and, and, you know, I, that's sort of the lens that I viewed zebrafish through, um, mm. kind of a different perspective than people who have been in the field a little bit longer. <laughs> yes, that would be my experience. There's before <laughs> CRISPR and after CRISPR. <laughs> They're different eras. Yeah. Um, yeah. advice for people who are, um, going to try using CRISPR and zebrafish, just sort of some broad brush tips. I know it's complex, but. Yeah. Um, I guess um, the advice that I have is to, um, I mean, do your homework on the front end and make sure that when you're setting out to start an experiment, 
you're starting with as much information as you can possibly have, um, and you're starting out with quality materials. Um, this isn't to say that you have to buy the, the, the best and the biggest and the fanciest materials and reagents, but if you are setting out to do something, you want to kind of do it the right way on the front end because there are a lot of moving parts in this system and a lot of things downstream that with early course corrections, you can maybe identify or adjust. But if you end up, you know, six months out and you're looking for this mutation and it's not anywhere, that's something that you might have been able to find early, right? You might have, or if you started with a different reagent or you asked around and said, hey, what does this target look like? What do you usually use? You know, check multiple databases for your SGs. There's, I guess that's a, a sort of a, a rambling circuitous way of saying there's a lot of information out there see if anybody at your institution is doing this and see if you can get some protocols from them and ask about it um, but also there's a great community um, on twitter on researchgate um, there's there are a lot of resources out there so my advice i guess is to to ask if you don't know ask um, and somebody can can usually point you in the right direction or has run into the problem that you have run into and can help you figure out what it is words to live by. Okay, good advice. And do you, do you want to make a quick comment on people who have attempted or been successful using CRISPR to knock out gene function and then move on to the precision knock-in and, and sort of that, that bumpy road? Yeah, and that's, I mean, that's something that, we, that we've encountered, um, that, I, that I've encountered with customers here, but in the zebrafish community as well. Um, I mean, the, a lot of times when people are making a model, they're making something that's a transgenic overexpression. They're making a knockout model. They're testing gene function. And there's a lot that you can do with that. But the precision or the like asking like, okay, what does this mutation do though? Like, or what, or how relevant is this if we're not modeling the precise human condition? That, that is driving people now to, to test these things. And what they're finding is that it's hard. It's really hard. You're, you're, you're looking for a needle in a haystack because of the underlying biology, the way that the repair occurs. Um, and you, you know, people can have all of the, you know, everything looks the same up until, up until you actually start screening or you've designed your donor homology and then you get nothing out on the back end. And you might work on it for months and months and months and not have any real indication why because everybody's locus is different and everybody's got slightly different hands and protocols and you know superstitions that they follow in the lab um, but uh, it's just I don't know it's it's a learning process for every, it's learning it's it's everybody's learning about this it's we're slowly starting to peel back some of the layers of understanding the repair mechanisms and understanding how you can manipulate embryos or manipulate things and with different fusion proteins on your nucleases to try to open things up for repair or get your repair template closer, um, figuring out what kind of different repair templates work best for which locus. But I would say we're still pretty early days in figuring those things out to mm -hmm. a point it reaches the same sort of accessibility and ease that, that knockouts have with CRISPR. Okay, so definitely leaning on your community, asking questions, you're probably not alone if you're struggling to be successful. In yes, that you're, you're, yeah. you're definitely not alone. 
<laughs> okay, in our last 30 seconds, what do you think might be the next big thing that zebrafish can uh, be useful for in the world of biomedical research? Um, I mean, I, I guess I'm, I don't know about the next big thing, but the thing that I see emerging really is um, screening for repurposing of drugs and for, um, uh, for utilizing them as a preclinical model. We've seen several cases so far. There is a really um, uh, publicized one with an ARAF mutation with a, uh, a patient with a lymphatic um, uh, disorder that um, was able to be treated because of something that they found in zebrafish. Um, the, the, oh, that is my timer. I set a timer as well because I wanted to just make sure I wasn't rambling too much, but I did. Um, We're going to make it. It's our last 10 seconds. Uh, Yes, but uh, so the I mean, with I think I think it's it's really in in the adoption of zebrafish more into this this preclinical space and the um, the the drug screening and modeling space. Um, there's there it's a tool that is really well equipped to doing it, and the more that we invest in the infrastructure and the the accessibility, the sharing of information, the this the sooner we will be able to um, to realize that and and use it for what it can do. Truly, and it feels very germane today as we think about the novel coronavirus and the pandemic that's affecting the world and, and how we quickly figure out uh, therapeutics that can address that problem. Maybe there's a role for zebrafish. There may be. Um, you know, there, I'd have encountered very few cases where a, an argument couldn't be made to, to try something in zebrafish. Um, I mean, the, the LD lab, Nels LD uh, and one of his postdocs, University of Utah, um, characterized a novel coronavirus uh, in gut epithelium in zebrafish. So I mean, that's, there's, there are all sorts of different facets of it and it is really a, a community effort and, a, and a, you know, a reach across industry and academia and, and various, um, various disciplines and there, there's a lot that can be done there. Well, on that hopeful note, thank you, Ben, for taking this 17 and a half minutes of time to <laughs> chat about zebrafish um, and you, our, our um, like and love of that model organism. So if people who are listening are interested in asking any additional questions of Ben or the team, you can email us at support at nemometrics.com. You can message us on Facebook. Um, and we look forward to doing this again, 17 minutes of science. Uh, stay tuned for when we will stand up another episode. We were thinking we might call these the quarantine chronicles. Uh, it's a good time to foster community, share ideas, and stay connected during this time. So thanks, everybody, and we'll see you next time. All right. Stay safe, everyone. Thank you.